Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, May 23rd at 9 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Stephanie Armour of the Wall Street Journal. Good morning. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So I want to start this week with the latest on the Medicare for All effort. The House Budget Committee Wednesday held the second hearing of the year, this one featuring the authors of the Congressional Budget Office report we've talked about before. I would note that we've had two hearings now, neither one of them in any of the committees that would be primarily in charge of writing and voting on this bill. Um, What, if anything, did we learn, Kimberly? Well, it was interesting. This hearing, I really found that a lot of the different Democrats were coming out and saying which bills they supported that weren't single-payer approaches. So we have the Medicare for America bill that would um, enroll people who are uninsured and who are on the individual mandate onto an expanded Medicare-like program. Um, You had certain Democrats coming out and saying that they supported the public option. Still a lot of fighting between um, Democrats and Republicans over whether, you know, single-payer was a good idea or not. But um, Democrats were more assertive this round with the approaches that they would prefer in order to achieve universal health care. I was a little bit surprised by that also. It's like, maybe they're feeling some of the Republican heat. The Republicans are dying to talk about this. The Republicans want as many hearings as they can have so they can, you know, say, this is socialism and the government will run everything. The the government takeover, all the things that they said about the Affordable Care Act that weren't true, that are a lot more true when it comes to Medicare for all. And I do think that supporters of Medicare for all are getting a little bit concerned because it it seems to be losing a little bit of its zeal and interest. You had um, the former head of the OMB, Peter Arzag, coming out uh, saying, that, you know, it was something that would just be too complicated to do. Um, And you see a lot of, you know, Joe Biden, for example, he hasn't embraced it. So a lot of the momentum, I think, that we saw right after the midterms seems to have cooled. You're not seeing a lot of coalescence even among the Democrats in the hearing, I thought. And I will say uh, Representative uh, Jayapal, who's the main uh, sponsor of the Medicare for All Act, was very clear (laughs) in the House, was very clear yesterday, excuse me, this week during the budget committee hearing and saying, I expect another hearing in this committee on my bill specifically. She does. She didn't count the um, CBO discussion to be um, the last word on what would occur. She wants another hearing specifically discussing her legislation. And we should remind people if they don't remember that the Congressional Budget Office report, they they, they were asked to do this report. It is not a typical CBO score of any bill. Final exam. Yeah. Well, it was more of a it was more of a study guide for a yes. final exam. Yes, I mean, it was a really interesting report it, it, that was about all of the decisions that would have to be made. And I, I was sort of amused because almost every question that the authors got asked, the answer was, well, that depends on how you structure it, which is true. So we haven't still haven't seen a, a CBO uh, And we'll have a new CBO director in a couple of weeks. That's true. <laughs> uh, you, and do you think he's likely to do anything different than well, they've done I, so far? 
well, since I, I know him the way I know everybody in my professional world, which is through the PTA and debate team carpool, I ran into him the other day and said, I think the first thing you need to do is requisition a box with a lot of zeros. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, although I will point out that there had there was a CBO score of the original single payer bill back in 1993 that was competing with the Clinton health plan, the Bill Clinton health plan that never became law. Right. Um, right. But so. I think one of the interesting things going is that even people who are on the Medicare for all bill definitely want that. They, we are seeing them sign on to other forms of coverage of expansion. It is, with the possible exception of Bernie Sanders, it is not an all or nothing game that people want to find that sweet spot. They are looking for a greater role for government subsidies, government coverage, whether it's any one of these 10 different alternatives of buy-ins and public options and Medicare for some and Medicare for, you know, alternate sort of like alternate side of the street parking. What I mean, the, the, the conversation is a little less oomph around Medicare for all per se, but there's continued momentum about some variant of something or other that is in the Medicare for all extended family, if you were to chart it out of second cousins of Medicare for all or whatever. I noticed that after the hearing was over, a bunch of reporters went to talk to John Yarmouth, the chairman of the House Budget Committee, um, and and they were someone said, well, so you don't plan to do this this year. And I'm not sure that there was ever a plan to do that this year. But he said, you know, very specifically, what we are trying to do here is lay the groundwork and do some of the due diligence that we need to do if we're going to do something in the next Congress. And I think that's, you know, sort of the point of a lot of these. It's like you can't do this. You're not going to be able to just sort of spring major health reform on the public or the Congress that you have to sort of start with some of these these backgrounders. And I think I that's mean, what it they're is doing true. now. It's amazing that we're discussing this so seriously when you consider the reception when it was first. No, it's the conversation is totally, and we've pointed out before, the conversation has shifted. It has shifted dramatically. The desire to do something about health care, we're there again, and we're there faster than we may have thought. Um, and it's for complicated reasons, including cost issues that are beyond Obamacare's fault or Obamacare's ability to resolve. But cost and coverage are related. We still have a coverage problem. We do not have as big a coverage problem as we had 20 million people ago. It's not fixed. How do you take the next step? How incremental? How much government? All those are the questions that tear apart health politics over and over again. But the groundwork is definitely, A, it's sped up, and B, it's to the left. All right. Well, in kind of overlooked news this week, uh, there are suddenly a bunch of bills in Congress that propose raising the minimum age to buy tobacco products from 18 to 21. Uh, one of them is co-sponsored by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky and Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, both from prominent tobacco states. Uh, they say that their effort is to keep e-cigarettes away from younger teens, since we've talked about that before. There's a huge problem with teens and vaping. Um, why are we seeing this from tobacco state lawmakers? It, it, it's a complicated thing that's unfolding, and you'll you'll see that the tobacco industry is doing a lot of advertising and a lot of lobbying in the e-cig companies. The McConnell bill is interesting because when he when he first announced it a few weeks ago, people raised their eyebrows and said, "Mitch McConnell, <laughs> you know, a tobacco bill." And that and, was kind of what I thought. Too. And then it turned out it had a lot of small print that was actually quite favorable to the industry. The industry is fine with. Um, raising the tobacco age to 21. There's, if they have to take something, they're going to take that because there's a whole lot of other things being talked about, including bans on flavors that they don't want to talk about. Then Mitch McConnell came out with Tim Kaine with a much tougher bill. Is it 
perfect in the sense, does everybody in the tobacco control community think it's great? No, some of them prefer an alternative bill by Brian Schatz and some others. But there have been a bunch. First of all, it's bipartisan. It's from tobacco states. McConnell really gave an interesting speech about the history of tobacco in Kentucky and saying, you know, what he has to say is a senator from Kentucky. I'm proud of our legacy. But he also said, it's time for change. We have too many people dying here in Kentucky. And a whole bunch of health groups did endorse it. Now, the Campaign for Tobacco for Your Kids has not endorsed it. They're, they prefer other things, but they and, haven't And they're sort of the, the preeminent public health right, anti-tobacco the, group. I think the pediatricians, the lung association, the heart association, I mean, do, do they want every word of this bill as is? Would they like to do other things as well? Is it going to be a slam dunk pass tomorrow without changing a word? No. It's just, it's now a serious bill that has public health support. Or is there still going to be some jockeying to get more things in? It encourages the states to do this. It doesn't blanket turn it into the 21 everywhere. But there are incentives for the states to do it and enforcement mechanisms and for the didn't states. Didn't McConnell say this is like one of his top priorities? Yeah. I mean, there, that's really saying a lot. I he think. has had, had no legislative priorities this year. The Senate has basically spent the whole year confirming judges, which arguably is his top priority. This right. is maybe and, and his top he, legislative and priority. Is he going to do this and say, okay, we've done it, and I don't want to talk about flavors, and I don't want to talk about the other things that the public health community, you know, that may well be it. On the other hand, there's something going on here, too. 14 or 15 states have already done this. Some of the public health people who fill in McConnell and Kane's bill doesn't do enough they're worried about state inaction. Actually, some conservative states have already done this. Um, and I haven't read the small print of every state bill. I think they're 14 and 15 laws, not bills. They're either signed or about to be signed. So I don't know if some of them are a little bit more small print tobacco friendly. And we should point out that, that states are free to, to set their own ages, but this would be a federal minimum. And currently, the, there's a federal minimum of 18. 18. Right. But Texas has done it. Utah, well, Utah's traditionally, it's a conservative state, but it's also a very anti-tobacco state. Utah's done it. Uh, Arkansas has an 18 has a 21 Virginia which is a purple state has but a tobacco state has a 21 and then a, another 10 or so more liberal states have have already done it to 21 so this is already sort of happening um, and the question is what else is going to happen but tobacco is also back in a way we haven't seen it and but also remember Scott Gottlieb this was his cause he's left the FDA there's a successor, Ned Sharpless, who is a cancer researcher. We can presume he's not crazy about tobacco, but an acting FDA commissioner has less oomph than a confirmed permanent one. So we don't know how, you know, what his agenda and how visible he'll be on this issue. But there's already FDA action to ban flavors, at least in smokeless tobacco. Not not menthol. That's a whole different issue. <laughs> but um, which which the bill, the other bill in the Senate would in fact yes. um, ban. But uh, yeah, okay. So now we get to watch the tobacco space too. Um, well, let's talk about the latest on the surprise bill front. There was another House hearing on the problem of unexpected bills from out of network providers this week. Uh, this one at the Ways and Means Committee, and there were more differences on display. I think at the first hearing, everybody sort of got up and said, yes, we want to fix this problem. And this time they said, uh, yeah, we want to fix this problem, but we don't really like how the other guy is doing it. Um, we're also seeing – we've seen a, a new bill or at least a draft of a bill out of the Senate. Um, where where are we on surprise bills? Is this, is this really going to happen? <laughs> if 
We would only be somewhat surprised if it does, right? I mean, <laughs> surprised about surprise medical bills. I mean, there's a new bill that comes out every day, including today. There is. Given that the, that the president this week has said that uh, if the Democrats don't stop investigating, he's not going to work on anything. I mean, does does this count as as some of the anything's? Even though the administration has said they want to do a well, surprise bill, they've already put fix. their principles out there. So That's I right. guess wait and see. So there's some things you need the White House to throw their weight behind to get moving. That's this one's already moving. This is a consumer bipartisan, consumer propelled bipartisan effort that the White House has endorsed. The fact that yesterday was not a great day for Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump, as one of my colleagues, Melanie Zanana, wrote um, this, this morning. It was my way or no highway. <laughs> for, for people who only pay attention to health news, the, the, everything this, else is right. falling apart. The Speaker yeah. of the House and, the, and the, the Senate Minority Leader went to the White House to talk about how to pay for an infrastructure, infrastructure package. And the president basically told them, you have to stop investigating me or there won't be any infrastructure or anything else. But don't you both? I mean, you're, don't you both see this sort of moving ahead? For yes, now? I still th- see that the fights that are going on as industry has their own opinions about what they will or will not uh, swallow in terms of some of these changes. I still see that as being a major sticking point. But right now, it feels like there's just a lot of debate and and dueling approaches, and I I've yet to see really a coalescence around one approach. Yeah. And one of the biggest um, arguments has to do over this arbitration question. Um, You have uh, certain Republicans in the Senate who aren't behind it. the compromise, I would say, that kind of came out um, last week from uh, Senator Bill Cassidy and um, Maggie Hassan. Thank you. Thank you. There was a bipartisan bill um, last week that came out. And what they did was they said, OK, you can use arbitration only if you have an issue with kind of this median rate that's set. And so the White House has said it's not interested in going in that direction and thinks it'll be disruptive. Um, there are another Republican senators who said the same thing to me. Um, it's not yet clear whether they'll kind of go with this compromise or not. But um, that's one of the main sticking points that you know we're kind of seeing when we talk to different senators. I still think the big problem is not even so much with the senators um, as, as with the stakeholders, as with yes, the hospitals and the saying. insurers yeah. and the doctors who all want different things. And they right. not only want different things, they really hate the other guys. Thing. Yeah, they all, yeah. Want some, they all want it fixed with someone else to pay for it. That's right. Someone's going to take a hit with whatever gets decided. And so, you know, you're going to have hospitals saying that they're not going to be able to cover all the care that they need. You're going to have insurers saying, you know, that, um, you know, it, they're going to have to Shouldn't, they shouldn't be, you know, referring people out of network without their knowledge and all that. So, um, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But it, it does seem like it might be, you know, I mean, it's it started as a bipartisan issue from the beginning, and they worked toward it very deliberately, and they held a lot of hearings about it. So, um, you know, they and again, having the White House behind it really, you know, shows that the president is probably open to to signing. So, so we're getting this bill, this another bipartisan bill from the the chairman and the ranking member of the the Senate Health Committee, um, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, um, which addresses surprise bills. Sort of, it's I mean, it's a menu. It's, it's, it's got a, menu, a bunch that's of stuff right. in it. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, I mean, is this sort of the most we can hope for for bipartisanship in this Congress? Well, I think that Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, as we've mentioned before, are are two lawmakers who can get things done and can work together. They've done so in education. They've done less successfully in health, although they've done on some FDA and other public health issues. Um, the bill coming being proposed today has su- surprise bills. It's got some drug costs. It's got some public health. It's got some vaccines. It's got some consumer protections. It's you know, it's, it's a grab tr- bag. Transparency. Right. Stuff, which is um, interesting. And I think that they understand what we just said is like, OK, everybody wants to do this. Nobody wants to pay for it. And so they put a bunch of things out to keep it going with the bipartisan seal of approval to at least not 
to say, okay, we both want to do this. Let's keep talking about it. Here are some options. Let's start narrowing them down. It's not a fix. And also, there's no abortion that I could tell on the draft we have seen, or at least the outline we have seen. Um, But the specter hangs over everything. Right. But this is less controversial. I mean, the Obamacare fixes that abortion got tangled up in. And if they tried to do it again, abortion would get tangled up in it again, was more controversial. This is something that is sort of a win-win for lawmakers. They would like to be able to go home and say, I fix this. Although I do do wonder if Democrats, I think Democrats are going to feel like this falls a little bit short. um, And I think we're going to be hearing that. It's interesting because there are so many different measures. I mean, there's not just surprise medical bills. There are options on drug prices. And also, I was interested to see that there um, is a a move to educate the public more about vaccination, given that we're facing this measles outbreak. Um, There's a lot of maternal mortality, which has been getting a lot of attention on the Hill, too. So what, you know, we're hearing from the HELP Committee is that they're kind of putting out all these um, different policies. They want to see what's sticks and what ends up being in the final bill. So uh, they did say that they hope to have something to President Trump by July, um, which is, you know, pretty aggressive timeline. July in Senate speak means next January. (laughs) Yes. July in Senate speak. But they are on the record saying July. We hope they have a committee action by then. They don't have the same calendar that the rest of us have. But this is an effort to to take a step ahead, to keep things alive, to show that the Senate is functioning a little. But I yeah. think they're very cognizant of healthcare being this key issue in 2020. I mean, the re- recent polls show it's number one, so they need to show they're delivering something. And both um, sides, I mean, one of these rare cases where both sides need to show that they're yes. delivering something. Yes. And I mean, the it's, concern, sort of, it's, the, it's in the both of their is, interests to work together. Yeah, the question is, will this beat up to be a good talking point and convince voters that they can make something happen and bring down costs? Yeah. And we talked, I think, last week or the week before about the House drug bills, which, again, were not dramatically large, but if they could say they were doing something, this seems to be in that category of things yes. that are, you know, yeah. not going to lower drug prices by themselves, but won't hurt. Yeah, but a lot of another f- wave of drug costs kind there of addresses there coming, is. and Pelosi has been working on that, which we can talk about some other week, but we reported that this morning. <laughs> All right. Last news item for this week, I want to talk about the latest in lawsuits against the Trump administration. Um, the first few arise from the so-called conscience rule the administration issued earlier this month. It feels like much longer ago. Uh, that allows healthcare workers, not just doctors and nurses, but front desk and cleaning personnel to decline to provide or help provide services that are contrary to their religious or moral beliefs. The city of San Francisco has already sued to block the rules, and now they are being joined by two dozen states in two separate lawsuits. Uh, like the family planning rules, we've seen rules like this before. In the case of the conscience rule, there was a similar one in the George W. Bush administration, um, though I'm not sure that one actually got challenged in court. Anybody want to handicap these suits' chances of uh, actually blocking this rule? I think that the Trump administration very much expected litigation. I think they've tried to make this as um, sort of foolproof as they can. Uh, I mean, you have to understand that it's about laws that already exist, but it really amps up the enforcement. And the states are really saying this is a, an overreach. This is not the way this this was intended to be. And and it would hurt their ability yeah. to deliver medical care. Right. I mean, that's right. what they're arguing. Exactly. And so I think this has definitely been predicted. And I do think that, like we've seen with with other things that have come out from the Trump administration, I think this will slow things down and, and, and have an impact in that way. 
And that's the purpose. It's, yes. it's run out the clock. Right. And the Democrats don't have great expectations of winning in court. The Democratic states, the Democratic AGs, I mean, they think they do not see the court as friendly to their point of view on this issue. But if they run it out to, through 2020 and by fighting it in the courts and then there's a, you know, a Democratic administration, the, the rules would not be enforced this way. That's the strategy. And that's basically what happened, I mean, with the last one, because it came out very late in the, yes. in the George W. Bush administration to the point where I think it took effect like, you know, the day before Obama was sworn in. Um, although with that, Obama rewrote that rule. Um, and so they just sort of put the whole thing on ice and then they redid it. And now this rule basically redoes the Obama rule. Um, right. And we, we might have, you know, like Mexico City policy, we may have something that just switches, an executive order that switches every time we change. Every four years, right. <laughs> so th- we may be, I mean, I think the strategy is to, to delay. Rather than to win. And to run on it. <laughs> yes. That too. That too. And speaking of those family planning rules, we have a lawsuit against the Trump administration from a Trump administration ally this week, uh, an anti-abortion family planning group that won a grant this year from the federal family planning program, even though it doesn't offer most forms of birth control to its patients. Kimberly, you wrote about this. What is Obria suing over? It's kind of interesting how everything's turned out because Obria applied for these Title X grants, which provide for, you know, family planning, birth control, um, STD testing, things like that, um, with the expectation that the Trump administration was going to put out this Title X rule that says don't directly refer to abortions or you're in violation of this Title X rule. That's been stopped by a federal judge. And so now Obria is saying, well, wait a minute, we're going to be required to violate our faith if we have to discuss abortion with patients, if we have to refer patients to abortion if they ask for it. And what's interesting is, as you mentioned, Obria doesn't directly prescribe birth control, but in order to even qualify for this Title X grant, they had to contract with kind of an outside clinic and then refer patients over there if they need access to birth control. So they're saying they're in violation of their faith, but they sought out this specific Title X grant. So um, I was I was surprised to, to see it come forth, but at the same time, given that there was a pause in what happened with uh, the Trump administration's rules, it was kind of, wait a minute, are they going to be in a, in a weird place and having to, you know, talk about something that they they essentially exist to, you know, go up against. They're very, they're anti-abortion. And right. they're, they're really right. positioning themselves as the uh, as the anti-abortion equivalent of Planned Parenthood. And certain, right. They're trying to go national. They're in a bunch of states now. They didn't get Title Ten in a bunch of states, only in California. But they are in uh, five or six states. I don't remember. It's, yeah, it's a, um, it's a bunch. They are of taking states. Medicaid in some of their sites. They are providing some some medical care, but they're not just a faith-based anti-abortion counseling clinic. They are, they are, they're not just those centers. They are bigger than that and they are more medical than that. But their whole reason for being is to provide women's health services in an anti-abortion and anti-not. They, they're, they're, fam- they're either abstinence or natural family planning, fertility awareness, what some of us would have called rhythm in a previous generation. That's their That's belief. That's what they do. They, do, <laughs> they would have to subcontract it to, to provide other things. But yeah, so now they're in the position if they've won this huge victory, they got Title X money for the first time, and kaboom, they've got to do exactly what they were created not to do. Somebody's going to have to do a book. You can't, you can't even do a spreadsheet the on the line of lawsuits mm-hmm. against yep. well, uh, We could have it be like a health reporter's spelling bee. Like... <laughs> Can you think of another one? Oh, you're out. We'd, but it would go on for like eight months. Yeah, we, we, we could probably we've probably done a lot. Julie, of you would win. Uh, maybe not, <laughs> but I would be competitive. 
All right. Well, that is the news for the week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Uh, Joanne, why don't you go first this week? There's a good piece in The New Yorker by Jerry Grotman, Jerome Grotman, on the troubled history of psychiatry. And it was really like... We just don't know very much about mental illness. What is a mental illness? It goes through the history of, you know, when we thought it was all the mother's fault to when do we think it's purely biological and, you know, what we've done, drugs that didn't work, drugs that might work, lobotomies. I mean, it's not a great history. Um, He actually, after being quite critical, he ends on a somewhat um, charitable note saying some people are being helped by these drugs. And he pointed out as an oncologist that, you know, cancer doctors do a lot of guessing, too. They have a lot of drugs that they have to figure out what combination might work for one people. So he sort of forgave them at the end and said, I sort of have been there, too. Stephanie. Uh, this is a story by Anna Edney about um, heart drug suppliers um, that had problems with uh, their supply in terms of being sanitary. And if, if this is part of kind of the ongoing look at uh, drugs, especially generic drugs that are made um, overseas and the difficulty that um, the FDA has in making sure that these are up to standards uh, that don't put consumers at risk. And, you know, it, it's really actually an interesting story um, because it, it's really really reminiscent of a lot of the problems in the food safety industry, too, where you have imported food. And this just sort of reflects the fact that that how do we, with limited resources in this country, make sure that, that drugs that are being used that are generic and made elsewhere um, don't have problems well, and, and the- showed people hiding um, actual documents that showed that they were not made in sanitary conditions. And and quality control. I actually have to say, you know, I was very, I actually take this drug. It's a blood pressure drug. And of course, they were all recalled from China. But yes. I'm like, well, I'm fine because mine was made in India. Well, it turns out these are the ones that were not made in great sanitary well, conditions. At least and, yours just had bugs and not the carcinogen <laughs> risk. Well, I have I have called my doctor and we are changing my medication based on, on our colleague Anna's story. <laughs> Kimberly. Yeah, um, mine is not a new piece, but I went to an event this week for um, the National Press Foundation. Um, They were awarding their Carol N.C. Mattingly Award for Mental Health Reporting. And um, I wanted to highlight it because I was so moved by what the reporters shared. Um, And they're from the Times-Picayune in New Orleans, which, um, as you know, many of us know has been bought by the advocate. A lot of the reporters there have lost their jobs, including the ones who were given this award. So the the names of the reporters are Jonathan Bullington and Brett Duke, and their investigative project is called The Children of Central City. And um, it talks about the um, issues that children face in New Orleans as they are confronted with violence on probably a weekly basis. And it's interesting because instead of, you know, profiling one child, they have a whole football team of young boys that they profile and what they've experienced. Um, So I really wanted to um, highlight that piece. And there's um, some great videography, um, some great photographs. And I really enjoyed hearing about how they integrated themselves completely in this story in the community and spent months working on it. And it's it's really a fantastic piece. Great. Well, mine is from my KHN colleague, Anna Maria Berry-Jester. It's called Heat and Violence Pose Twin Threats for Asylum Seekers Waiting at the Border. Uh, Anna went to Mexicali, which is one of the border cities in Mexico, where Central American asylum seekers are waiting often for months at a time in crippling heat in very dangerous conditions uh, to make 
make their claims to U.S. officials. It's a really wrenching story about people who are trying very hard to play by an ever-changing set of rules, and you really should read it. Um, So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Leonard KL. At Joanne Kennan. At Steph Armour One. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.